Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is episode four. Uh, today we're talking about, it's kind of a news episode, but we're also talking about, well, some pretty big news. Um, so yeah, we'll just gonna, we're just going to jump right in just because there's so much, there's kind of a lot of stuff that's pressing. There's a big revelation, uh, but the headliner, I guess, before the news is the new short film called Nowhere to Run starring Sapper, which is uh, acted and portrayed beautifully by Dave Bautista. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Where's your mom? She's over there. So, what'd you bring me this time? I have. The power and the glory. Very exciting. Shouldn't take you. It's about an outlaw priest who's just trying to understand the meaning of being human. It's not sad, is it? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, Guardians could have been the sort of a, uh, sort of like, because it, 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 it's such a, a comical role and it's such a, a strange role. And I was thinking maybe that's just the sort of like, you know, flash of brilliance from this guy who happened to be kind of born to play this part. But no, he's just a great actor. I mean, in this one, you know, five minute long short, he portrays this whole gamut of emotions in a very naturalistic way which is is really hard to do especially for somebody who comes from a, a wrestling background where you know everything's larger than life and it's almost like you know it's like stage acting times two because it's for arenas you know what i mean yeah and yet in this he's able to keep that intensity and keep that um dynamism but compress it into this like really tight really intimate package and to the point where like you know you really have to like you really tune into what he's saying and there's so much behind it and it just draws you in i cannot wait to see where his career goes. Yeah. I really, I really truly can't. And even in the, uh, the trailer that featured his character, you just see in his eyes that this man has powerful acting chops. And I think he's he's a larger man in terms of his size. He works out. He's known for guardians, guardians of the galaxy where he's kind of this big dumb oaf, but he's not dumb at all. But I, 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 I can see it in his face that he's like, give me something to, act and i'll do it yeah and, he and got, he's acting the shit out of it yeah and he got the rule of a lifetime you know yeah and he said he said uh, in an interview recently that um he's having a hard time convincing directors to cast him in diverse ways because it's hard to um to have the body of a gorilla you know but the acting chops of a poet kind of a thing yeah you know and uh but but it, this is exactly what this part seems to be for him and i think uh it's such a great harbinger of Really cool stuff to come. I, I cannot wait to see him get cast in more things. And in this one brief appearance, he is totally indelible. Like, I, I really care about his character so much. Yeah, I would agree with you. And uh, there's there's so much going on. I, this this short film is a little bit different. It's not as heady. It's not as uh, rapturous in terms of what's going on. Uh, like uh, Neander Wallace was speaking about... So many, right. di- so many different things. He was kind of uh, waxing poetic in many ways. Right. But there, this... there are no firmaments being cracked. In yes. Short. Absolutely. Right. And this is a man on the run. This is a man who clearly we know. Spoiler, spoiler alert! If no one wants to know, obviously. I mean, we don't know for sure, but obviously he's a he's a replicant. Uh, he's right. he's on the run. The short film shows his incredible strength, but it also shows his incredible um, heart. And his softness yeah. and his uh, his connection to that little girl. And he gives right. her a book, uh, which I, I haven't read that book, but I read up on it called The Power and the Glory, um, right. which is actually taken from the Lord's Prayer, which is mm. thine be the power and the glory for never and ever. Forever and ever, right. Amen. Yeah. And uh, it's a book about uh, a priest who there's a cop after this priest um, and it's kind of what it what it is to be human in some ways or what it is to to live in this world and to be your true self um which mm. is i think what it is to be human or what it is to kind of figure out what that means um so right. very, very telling you know he's kind of given her her his own story in some ways right right and and what's cool in that one interaction and this is also to to luke scott's credit is that you get this sense of such a history there with this little girl, right? Like they're they're very intimately connected. They don't have to like speak in some sort of heightened way. Like they've they've had this conversation 
dozens of times, right? Like this is this is the thing. A sapper comes over, he gives her a book to read, she reads it and gets back to him, and he's trying to like instill in her this sense of words or sense of ideas or something, which again is like such a human gesture, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's like as as human as it gets, but coming from somebody who appears to be at least a quote unquote skin job. Um, and, uh, and which of course harkens back to the original film and how a lot of the, the, you know, semi-synthetic characters in it are the ones who are the most human. Um, I also think it's interesting how, so, so he's being chased, right? Because he appears to be this escaped, um, synthetic who's, you know, being hunted down, this android. Um, and the, the, the woman and child that he's interacting with are also on the run, but from, um, these rather cretinous or villainous segments of society that are after them because they're vulnerable women. Um, and, uh, and I, I think it's just, it's an interesting little dual play there that sets up some, some cool ideas because it, it, you know, it, it, the, 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 uh, androids aren't necessarily the only ones being hunted, the replicants rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, everybody is fair game in some ways in a society that's broken down this far and it's how you look out for each other and it's how you defend each other that, ultimately determines your your humanity you know and i hope that gets played on a lot absolutely and uh you know during that short you saw him walking in that very blade runner environment um Mm -hmm. and you know there's tons of people in and out i mean it was the most blade runner set since the film Um, right really it it looked like it was just a continuation it looked like they just didn't break the set down they just kept filming on it you know yeah and it, it really it really did you saw a cop they showed an lapd officer you saw the back of his his jacket or whatever, and it was all lit up. So LA it was like illuminated. Yeah, yeah cool which I loved. That? I thought it was great. Yeah, that was cool. That um, was very cool. But there's still, there's no sense of law and order. I mean, people are kind of running in and out. And, um, right. you know, obviously those guys, those very thuggish guys are are trying to, it looks like probably trying to take those gr- the, the woman and her daughter for some type of sex trafficking or something. Right. Or maybe right. have right. their way with them or something. And, right. you know, there was a, a moment and you could see it in Sapper's face where do I defend them or do I defend myself and stay low? Right. Because if I right. defend them, I'm giving myself up essentially. Right. But it's only a moment. It's all, it's only a moment. Yeah. And then his better angels went out and he realizes that he has to intervene. You know? Absolutely. Um, and when he does, what, what's so cool with a guy like Dave Bautista in a part like this is that he is a genuinely powerful physical person, you know? Like, it's completely believable that he could hurl somebody across the room because that's what he was paid millions of dollars to do for a decade plus, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's cool when you have somebody who is is very much in character and is very much a believable character in this film, but who also is very clearly physically capable of these acts, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a really cool dynamic. He's just, he's awesome for this part. He is awesome. And I see in his eyes... The same thing I saw in Rachel's eyes uh, yeah. when I watched that film. It's it's this it's kind of who who am I? There's this yeah. depth of this depth of experience in him and this passion. You can just see that he loves life, that he wants yeah. to live, but he's also right. afraid. I mean, in this big, huge, giant guy who has no reason to be afraid of anyone, he's not really afraid of anyone. I think literally, I think he's afraid that some gun or something will take him out and that'll be it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you totally get that sense. And you know what to me was a really effective shot was so, so I, I guess we, we can kind of walk people through the short too a little bit. So, so it starts off with him um, having some sort of a panic attack right in this bathroom. Um, and he's like hyperventilating and he's splashing water on his face and he calms himself down a little bit knowing that he has to go outside. He probably had just escaped from some close call, you know, um, perhaps, and that's that's why the LAPD was around. You know, so this could be all related to that. So he calms himself down, and then he stops and he steps back and he puts on these glasses. And it's such an interesting juxtaposition because, like we said, like as a physical presence, he's very intimidating and very kind of masculine um, and very powerful. But these glasses are so delicate; they're almost like, um, you know, like like 19th century French eyewear that you might have seen on somebody's, you know, like the little nose pinchers or something. And they put him on, and immediately he becomes not daintified, but he becomes sort of delicate. Mm-hmm. Like you, you see in him this fragility that that just wasn't wasn't there before, and that's of course it's not like that's just because of this like set this like you know prop. It's because of his acting, but but the prop facilitates that, and you see him as like this person who is more than just this brutish large um, force. You know, you see somebody who might have a life of the mind and might be um, a little bit more sympathetic than 
you might assume when you just see this hulking guy in a bathroom splashing water on his face. You know? I would agree. It's absolute complexity. That little yeah. moment, that little gesture, those glasses, which he may or may not need. May I don't know. I don't know how that works with replicants. I don't know right. if they... I mean, why would they need? Why would they need eyewear? Why would they need eyewear? And there's a that moment in the in the uh, film or in the short where he's defending the mother and the, and the daughter, and one of the guys puts a knife in his arm. And he looks at it like no, he couldn't feel anything. There was no reaction to it at all. And uh, I'm curious. And I noticed that even in the original Blade Runner, when they would be, when they would, when something would happen, I didn't see them show pain, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting. Um, so that was just some small thing that I, I realized. Hey, this isn't affecting him at all. And in fact, it emboldened him to say no. And in that moment, it was a very interesting moment. All the sound in that scene goes dead and he's throwing those yeah. guys against the wall. Um, yeah. I thought the short was really great. I don't think about, I, I, it doesn't resonate to me as much as the Neander Wallace piece, um, just because it's a difference playing on different ideas. Um, but I thought it, it is as equally powerful, but it's far more beautiful aesthetically. It's just to be mm -hmm. re-immersed in that world. Um, my but it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a, such a smaller scope, you yes. know, like, like you said in the beginning that the Neander Wallace scene is like this, it's literally about the future of humanity, yes. right? Whereas this one, it's one one guy who is trying to maintain a, a, the ability to stay alive in a very tight environment, right? So um, from a story standpoint, they might have equal relevance, but from like an overall world building standpoint, obviously they're, they're totally different things. I thought this was exciting because we saw that Blade Runner aesthetic coming back. We saw this the sense of the world, the world immersion, like there was a sense of continuity there. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I, I know our last conversation about the previous Luke Scott short um, echoed the same sentiment that I'm about to talk about, which is in all of these uh, these comment sections on the Blade Runner Facebook group posts, the, not the Facebook group, but the actual like official the Warner Brothers Blade Runner account. There are so many comments from people saying, you know, it looks too clean. It doesn't look classically Blade Runner. This is a terrible idea. Like this is going to be ruined. This there's something like they're not getting the aesthetic right, um, and I sympathize with that to a degree because I'm also a pretty visually oriented film goer and, and I I'm aware of that. But I'm also in the trailer. There is so much of that in it, and um, just because these shorts might not always echo that ex exact same aesthetic, I don't think there's reason to be afraid. But all that being said, what was so cool about this is that we saw something that felt in a lot of ways very classically Blade Runner aesthetically. And then I think um, it, it felt cool. It felt like I was back in that environment again. I, I felt like, oh man, I can feel the rain hitting my head. You know, I can smell the shit in the alleyways. Like this feels like I'm back in LA, you know, and in, in, in Blade Runner. So I, I would agree with you. It's very tactile. It's very, it kind of jumps off the screen at you. And to, to that point, and I've seen that before, I've been reading those comments from when people first started seeing clips. Oh my mm -hmm. God, it's too clean. It's too this, it's too that. And my... The way that I react to that is I don't want to go and see Blade Runner again. I don't want to see it again. I want to see a different story. And right. there are scenes in Blade Runner that are absolutely clean and crisp and clear, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's at um, uh, Tyrell's house or Tyrell's, house, Ty mentioned. Tyrell's yeah. building. Uh, elements of different scenes where it seems very, very clean and very, very mm -hmm. crisp. When Deckard is at the police headquarters... He's mm -hmm. he's talking and it's very clean there. It's I mean there's a lot of stuff on the desk, but it's not that same aesthetic. It changes right. depending right. on where they go. And then when he's on the street, uh, it's that classic Blade Runner environment. But that's not everywhere right. in that film either. Um, that's true. That's so, true. But I, I think we we start assuming that it was because the quality of the actual video recording equipment back then was so different. Like it was you know, like I mean that was shot on physical film stock, obviously you know, much uh, way over thirty years ago. So, uh, you know, things have changed a lot since then. And we, we have the ability to capture much higher luminosity now and much, you know, greater clarity and depth of image. So, like, you know, it, it's going to look it's going to look different. I mean, it's shocking no matter what you do. Like we've seen this with it, which uh, I, I'll, I'll get back to in a little bit It's you know, because of the um, soundtrack stuff that I want to talk about. But I know you and I both saw this and you, you and I both enjoyed it quite a lot. And I, you know, we went back and watched the, the original television miniseries again recently, which so did I. has not held up, in my opinion, very well. Um, and yeah. it, and it just looks totally different, but it, it doesn't look totally different because of some aesthetic consideration. It looks totally different because, you know, it's a 30 year old TV miniseries on a much tighter budget shot with like what, what might be the worst lighting in the world. I mean, oh my God, it's so poorly lit. Yeah. Um, and you know, but, but that's like a technical consideration as opposed to an aesthetic one, but people were complaining a lot on the, uh, on the pages on the, like the, the Warner brothers page for it, um, 
whenever they would put clips up, they'd be like, oh, this is like too clean. It's too easy to see things. It's too, it's too visually, um, you know, uh, uh, like aestheticized. And I was thinking like, how, like, I mean, we're judging this thing. Like it has to be shot on the same freaking camera setup. I mean, it's, it's a new decade. It's a yeah. new era. It's a new century. You yeah. know what I mean? Stuff's going to look a little different. And, and if we hold on to everything and make it so precious, then like we're never going to be able to supersede that, you know? Go ahead and make a VHS transfer of it if you want, you know? Yeah. But, but it's, it's going to look different. It's it gonna is going to look different. And what's successful about Blade Runner isn't just the aesthetics. The aesthetics work in tandem with the story that's being presented, with right. the characters. Right. So all of that working together made for an incredible film that has not seen an equal yet. Um, yeah. So I think these this focus on minutiae, and that's really what I believe, I think mm-hmm. it's 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 a little bit immaturity, and I, I understand it. I understand it because this is sacred ground we're on right now. You're it going, is. You're it going is. back, and you're and you're telling you're making a sequel to a film that doesn't need one. So right. there is a lot of skepticism. I I'm right. one of right. them. I'm one of them. Isn't so am I. I th- I totally feel it, and I totally have that reaction when I see footage come out. My first reaction is always, "Oh, this doesn't look like classic Blade, Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. This doesn't look. This doesn't feel the same." I totally get that. I just don't put it on Facebook because I'm th- I kind of I try to kill myself and check and think all right like try to like take it as what it is but yeah i mean you're right it doesn't need a sequel um everything's being milked for cash right now all of these old franchises because the audiences are getting to a point where they're ready to be nostalgic again and they're ready to like look back in the childhoods um it makes sense from a from a, a financial standpoint while, while why they're doing this and it's really incumbent upon the studios to make something of such high quality that it just banishes those arguments and it to me gives me a huge amount of hope Covenant is something that you and I have talked about, um, you know, at great length. We feel very differently about. But that's an example of a film that um, I don't think was the knock out of the ballpark that it needed to be to get people on board again because it was so divisive. Whereas the the It um, remake uh, was like it it was just very, very genuinely well received on its own artistic merit. And because of that, it doesn't feel beholden to the old version of it. It doesn't feel like it's this, um, you know, cash cow. So Blade Runner has to get that right. It has to feel like it's its own artistic statement, like it exists because it had to exist. Yes. Like it had to come into the world because it had to say what it had to say. It had to be tied to this time in our world, in our socio-geopolitical environment. Like it, it had to exist out of an artistic impulse, not out of some, you know, um, need to make a couple million bucks. And and I I, I still feel like we're going to see that film. I, I still feel like that's what we're going to get. And Blade Runner, I, I would agree with you, and Blade Runner... 2049 or 2049, which is Denis Villeneuve says it. That's that how way. he says it. I yes, which that, I yeah. love that actually. I prefer that. Yeah. Um, it's a interesting sequel because it didn't. It wasn't begging to be made. It wasn't. It's a. They're making a sequel to a, a financial flop. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a lot. They're making it because they feel like it's worthy. It's very very different. Um, so I think. I think we're in good hands. I really do. Um, Me too, man. Uh, Me too. Aside from that, uh, I say that we move on. The next set of news is that Johan Johannesson is no longer attached to um, the soundtrack to Blade Runner 2049 or 2049. And Hans Zimmer has complete credit uh, on the poster. What yeah. are your thoughts about that? So I, it's it's amazing how quickly this progressed because you remember back in July we got news that um, that Zimmer and Benjamin Walfish were being brought on board to help out with Johansson and we talked about that in the podcast at some length and at the t- at that time we were all saying how is that possible like we have a few months left until this I mean I mean at that point you would assume they're done with post production and they're just getting ready for the marketing and distribution you know. Um, which apparently they're not. I mean, apparently they're still in post because there's no way that a film score has been completed in a matter of two weeks or whatever it was since this announcement came out. Yeah. So first we had that in July. And then um, just a matter of a, about a week ago, we get the uh, Icelandic newspaper, which I'm going to try to pronounce. And uh, I can't wait to butcher this. And I apologize to our Icelandic listeners, but it looks like it's pronounced Fretablajau. I don't think that's how you actually say it, but it's it's a it's a it's an Icelandic newspaper. They broke the news that Johansson um, has been completely cut from this project entirely. He's no longer on the credits. Uh, he's not in the, the IMDb listing, uh, and 
And further, it looks like Ben Wallfish has also been taken off it. So this is something I've been combing all over the internet. Um, Wallfish actually did an AMA on Reddit um, last week, which was very cool. And somebody asked him about this and he didn't respond to it. So what, what my gut is telling me is that Zimmer is probably the sole name level composer on this thing. Wallfish might be helping out with orchestrations or with a couple of sub themes, but not on a credit level, almost like a ghostwriter. And that um, this means that uh, this is essentially a Hans Zimmer scored movie and that this um, embargo that they have over talking because there's like official um, legalese that's, I guess, been been drafted that is barring Johansson and one would assume Wallfish from addressing this in public. Um, because I guess they don't want to generate negative publicity, which is understandable. Um, we're not going to know what happened. You know, initially the report was that um, Johansson had a very busy schedule and that um, Zimmer and Wallfish were being brought on to help out with his scheduling. Um, and then and then Denny Villeneuve said uh, this, uh, he, he said something about how um, it was, they were having a hard time capturing the sound of Vangelis' score and that they were looking for something new that would harken back to it and that it wasn't quite coming out right. And so then, then we kind of thought, well, maybe that's why these other guys were brought on. Maybe Johansson was having a hard time internalizing that aesthetic. But now it looks like he's just totally gone. So what we have here is this aborted score that I would still love to hear. I bet it's really yeah. cool that Johansson wrote that is being supposedly completely scrapped and replaced by this um, Zimmer score. Now, relatively recently, uh, Johansson, uh, rather, um, Villeneuve said that they were keeping Johansson's theme. Yes, I was going to mention that. Yes, right. So, so we'll we'll see. I mean, but I mean, I've read something. They must be recording this now. Oh, you've read something. I've read something. I read something recent too that said they're actually not keeping that theme. They yes, yeah, that it's gone. It's all this is crazy. Yeah, it is. This thing is coming out in two weeks. Here's what I think. I think that uh, this all happened probably six, seven months ago, and they're doing it in stages. And so, okay, let's, we're bringing in Hans Zimmer. Oh, okay, okay. And so that was stage one. Um, so he was brought in a long, long time ago. And so they probably thought as for PR, for the sake of PR, because they know that the fandom is very small, but it's very, we're very, we hold that, we hold the original film with our fists, you know, tightly. Um, and yeah. fandom is not going to handle that news. And they're going to think, oh, no, if that's happening, what's going on with this movie? So I think right. they had to release this info in stages. And I would imagine that Johansson has been off of this score for five, six months. You know what? I think you're probably 100% right. That makes so much more sense to me. But the reporting of it is still so unclear. Like they're, they're, we're still getting these weird drips and drabs. Yeah. Um, and people saying things like um, – and I, I can't remember what news source this was. Um, but somebody said – that Zimmer had been pulled from his concert tour because he's been on this this huge you know tour, like forty state or whatever concert tour for this whole year that he was pulled from that to score the film recently. Interesting. Um, which which seems I mean from from my standpoint as a composer like that that seems impossible to me that you could just do this entire um well, how long is it an hour and sixty three minutes yeah yeah it's it's like epic, two, epic, two hours and twenty three minutes yeah right right this hugely long feature in a matter of weeks, you know, and then, and then have it in time for orchestral recording sessions because Zimmer, as we know from his recent work, likes to meld um, electronic sounds with orchestral sounds. So it's not like that's a, it's not like a quick process. I mean, that, that, that's like, you have to work with the musicians unions. You have to get them in the studio. You have to get the recording engineers set out. You have to scrap all the cues that were previously written, come up with new material for it. That feels like it's synthesized. And I mean, Zimmer, I agree is an amazing composer, a, a brilliant guy. And by all accounts, works very quickly. But you can't do it that fast, even if you have a whole studio doing it on your behalf and you're just like getting your name attached to it or something, which I'm not saying he's doing. But I think there might be elements of that going on. Um, you're not going to get it written that quickly. So I think you're probably right, Jamie. I think this probably happened a while ago. And for the sake of downplaying negative publicity, they are really slowly leaking this out. But let's also keep in mind, this was leaked by an Ice, a small Icelandic newspaper. Right. This wasn't leaked by the by, uh, you know, a Hollywood reporter. Mm -hmm. um, this was this was leaked by a regional newspaper and then taken up by the, the global press, which tells me that so, probably Johansson leaked it himself quietly. I would imagine yeah, he's, he's you're right. He's Icelandic. How would they know? I mean, he's all over. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's what I suppose. I don't know if that's the case. Um, Maybe you're totally right. But uh, I so I am very confident in Zimmer. Uh, a lot of his scores I own. Uh, mm -hmm. my, one of my favorite scores of all time is, and I've talked about this before, is uh, Interstellar, and I'm going to play a clip from that, 
and we'll mm. probably play a couple of clips that you love. Uh, so his music is always kind of going in my head along with like people like Philip Glass and um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Howard, what's his name? J- James Howard Newton? Is that J- James Howard Newton, yeah. yeah. James uh, Newton Howard. James Newton Howard, yes. James Newton Howard, yeah. Yes, uh, who I love and I adore. And uh, I, I have scores moving in my head all the time and Zimmer's a part of that. full confidence and uh, i hope everyone else does too because i think about think about the score to the thin red line which then was used in pearl harbor which was a shit film but Mm -hmm. the score the part that he wrote that was so powerful in the thin red line they what they used it for the trailer for pearl harbor and i think they realized Mm -hmm. we have to use this in the film we can't not use right. this in the film. So I think he rewrote it just a little bit, but he placed it in Pearl Harbor. Um, and it's mm-hmm. beautiful. It is just breathtaking. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he has uh, a, a truly legendary career, and, and it's well-earned because for, you know, going on four decades or something, he's been uh, increasingly essentially the dominant go-to blockbuster film composer. And he's very much taken over the mantle um, from... Uh, Oh my god! I literally can't think of it from uh, John Williams. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, oh, weird. That's a yeah. weird um, He's like taking that mantle over from John Williams in a lot of ways, who's kind of scaled down um, his creative work. And you know, we all need somebody to listen to. We need somebody who's a go-to person. And Zimmer, you know, having Zimmer attached to a movie will sell tickets because people love his work because he has this incredible track record. I mean, um, and not only just in film, but in video games. Like you know, he and it's not like some artistic tiny game i mean it's call of duty modern warfare 2 was his first video game project i mean mm-hmm. which you know sold billions of dollars worth um in, in revenue i mean this is a guy who comes on and completely uh knocks things out of the park from a financial standpoint um and he's somebody who it's not like he's written a crappy film score you know but i think it's important except to one oh which one's that uh, inferno Ah, and it wasn't crappy it was just i don't think it was crappy music i just think it was phoned in i think it was probably done okay we're doing this other film um the 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 film was phoned in itself so it's not that big of a deal i was gonna say it could this could be uh you know a you are what you eat scenario where like you know he got this piece of shit and he he shat on it he's like okay here you go yeah totally right well i was gonna say it's amazing when you think of his versatility too because i feel like he has been um unfairly pigeonholed by people and i'm i'm one of them as this guy who um, basically a- everything that he did in The Dark Knight, because that's such a, a landmark film, I feel like we kind of think that is Hans Zimmer now. So like the the big brass wonk cues that we talked about. Which I love. Episode, yeah. Which I, I love too, but obviously are overdone at this point. Um, was that started, very, didn't that start with Inception? That was the one that really popularized it, but they're also in Dark Knight too. They're all over um, you know, active films from the mid 2000s on really. Um, but but it, it's the thing is that in Inception, because that actually had storytelling significance, because it sounded like the slowed down um, La Vie en Rose music. Yes. So like so so that actually became like part of the fabric of that. Which I, and so I think that's why we we associate it so strongly with the Inception soundtrack. But um, but he was ex- experimenting you know with that from quite a long time ago. But you look at the basic elements of Dark Knight. You have a clearly projected simple melody in a lot of these, like a very simple melody with a very simple and repetitive. Um, harmony so something that is very easy to kind of get hooked into your ear that you can hear uh, if you get rid of all the complexity going on you can hear it as something just very simple and very identifiable but then on top of that you have all of these like you know these batteries of percussion going with these counter rhythms and you have a lot of very interesting orchestral stuff going on and then especially in dark knight with the joker material you have this proliferation of the synthetic sounds like that you know that that um, distorted guitar that signifies the joker coming and you know all of these these other things that he did. So, so that kind of set the blueprint for what we think of as contemporary Hans Zimmer, but you got to go before that. And you look, for example, um, when he wrote Thelma and Louise, um, he wrote slide guitar stuff for Pete Haycock to play. Um, when he did the lion King, you know, he, he wrote this extremely believable proto African musical theater style music that a whole generation holds incredibly dear to their heart. I mean, I love the lion King soundtrack. Mm -hmm. 
And I had no clue that Zimmer had anything to do with it until I was like, uh, you know, 25 or something. And I realized that he won the Grammy for that thing in 1995. Yeah. Zimmer won the Grammy for The Lion King. And we never talk about him having done that because we think of him as this, you know, action dude. You know? And he wrote the soundtrack to the to Hannibal, which was directed by Ridley Scott. An yep. amazing soundtrack. He, he scored. It was the first time anyone put to music. What was it? It was Dante's. Well, it was Dante's Inferno that he put to mm. music called Vide, mm. Vide Cordium, I believe. Oh, I'm, the lyrics. Yes. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And the melody he wrote, it is beautiful. And in fact, Ridley Scott loved it so much that he used it in Kingdom of Heaven, which is a film that I love. Um, and that, right. that became uh, Ed Norton, he's the prince with the mask, that his theme. And when he died, um, that was the thing that they played. I mean, the the, the, the piece gives me chills. I have no, I have no hesitancy with, with Zimmer. I think he is amazing, and I, I think about yeah. the Dark Knight and the, the last film, the last Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I bought that that score, moved me so much. I bought it, and I, it's yeah. just powerful and amazing. Um, so I, yeah, I, his his stuff has been. I mean, Black Hawk Down, Gladiator. Speaking of Ridley Scott, Black Hawk Down. Um, oh my God, it's amazing. It's, all, it's awesome, and it sounds totally different from anything else, right? Yes, that he's done. Um, let alone the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. You know, he's done uh, all the Sherlock Holmes films for recently. Um, Inception, which is one of my one of my favorite films. I think we we can agree that that's just oh. an incredible soundtrack. I mean, yeah. that is one of the best scores of this decade. Inception, Interstellar. I think for me, Interstellar stands out as one of the best scores I've heard in my lifetime. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 transcendent. It's really really good. But it does owe a lot to Philip Glass. But that's okay. It's okay. Philip Glass owes a lot to Terry Riley. You know, that's we're true. all it's a it's it's a yeah. progression. You yeah, know, it's okay. It totally is. Um, um, I I just think I think that it's important to remember that that we could be experiencing one of two things, right? Either this was the studio getting nervous, or it was the studio making a brave. Um, choice to do something closer to the vision of the film, right? Either they didn't think that they were going to have a successful launch without Zimmer attached to it and with this relatively, I mean, you know, for a mass market unknown composer writing perhaps more esoteric stuff, that's one side of it. The other side is maybe they just said that we think Hans Zimmer has a better vision for this film. And I think we're going to find out what that what that is ultimately because once this um, non-disclosure agreement, uh, you know, is, is passed and we have the launch of the movie and people are talking more, um, I think we'll We'll learn a lot more, but I'm I'm just excited to see what it ends up what what the reasoning ends up being. I would agree, and I, as much as I love Johan Johansson, I own actually the only piece of him piece of his music that I own is Arrival, and I listen to that score quite a bit, and it's mm-hmm. very moody and very dark, but mysterious and ethereal and beautiful. Yeah. To be honest with you, I don't know if he is the right. Well, he was the right choice for for Blade Runner, which is very specific. And I'm not talking mm-hmm. synth. I'm just talking. You need specific, bold sounds for that for for this kind of these universe film in universe films. And I don't yeah. know if that's his forte. Uh, listening yeah. to the score, score for Arrival, and I've heard I've heard of his other stuff. Um, He's far more atmospheric, and not that Blade mm-hmm. Runner is atmosphere for sure. It's totally atmosphere, but and so Vangelis's music is atmosphere, but it's a different mm-hmm. kind of atmosphere. Where I feel like Johansson is more almost sound effects, using sound effects to tell stories. And Just more you, abstract. More right. abstract. Yes, that's the correct term. And 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 the, and the Blade Runner um, soundtrack that that Vangelis wrote is actually it's funny if you if you don't think about what it sounds like. And you don't think about what anything that Zimmer has done recently sounds like. And you just look from like if you just put it in terms of words, they kind of match up line for line. They both use very clearly projected melodies, right? Yes. Like the love theme, you know, in, in Blade Runner. I mean, it's very, it's a very simple, very memorable theme, right? Um, they both combine or, uh, organic, meaning acoustic, and inorganic or electronic sounds, right? Um, like for like going back to the to the love theme that I was just talking about, like it's played on a, on a saxophone by a living, breathing human, but everything else in it is synthetic, and that's part of why it sounds the way it does. 
in Dark Knight, um, the the score, which of course Howard also had something to do with, you know, like you have the, the that Joker sound that I talked about, which is non, which is inorganic, being played up against an orchestral soundtrack of drums and horns, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they actually in a lot of ways mirror each other's aesthetics, even though the the resultant sound is very different. Yes. So there might be some very low level things that are very common between them that allow them to tell a story in a similar way, and maybe that's part of it. You know? It could be, and Zimmer has sp- has talked at length about the score for Blade Runner inspiring his career. So Mm -hmm. he's been connected and he also did the score to Tron, which is very Tron, but it's very Blade Runner. It's very, I mean, if, if anyone, I mean, uh, let's see who else was it? Gorillas, the gorillas. Wait, 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 no, no, it was, uh, it was, um, yes. Oh my God. Electronic group. Yeah. Uh, Daft Punk. Daft Punk, yes. Daft Punk, so yeah. Daft Punk is cre- is credited as oh they did the score, but really Hans Zimmer did a lot of work with them. Hans Zimmer stepped in with them and created that score, and I attribute the grandness to that score. I think Daft Punk did a lot of the the skirmishes, a lot of the kind of crazy chaotic sounding things that we hear, but the grand mm-hmm. themes are Hans Zimmer. Again, again, to kind of go back to an earlier statement, I have no, no doubt whatsoever that this is going to be great. Uh, I think that they probably made the right decision. We'll see. I hope to. We'll see. I, we'll I, see. Hope, I hope I, I fall in love with the soundtrack. I better fucking fall in love with the soundtrack. I I, <laughs> I, I, I want to love it as much as I love the original. My, I, just a, a real uh, quick. It, it might not happen. I know. I know. Uh, I, the original, the original soundtrack is like a, a one in a billion. I mean, it is. Yes. It is a, a true work of artistic integrity that um had no expectations on it because like there had been no blade runner soundtrack before it yeah. right yeah um and like it was its own unique rare bird uh and because of that it's it's very special and it's kind of untouchable so you know i, I think we're setting ourselves up for disappointment if we say that we want that to be replaced by something. but you know what yeah. i want to be disappointed well i don't want to i want to be... love this thing yeah and it's okay that happens and I don't want it to dis. I don't want it to replace the original. I just want it to be up there for me. I want it to love it as much as I possibly can. One quick note before we move on to our last bit: yeah. the short film, what it was lacking. I know it's a short film; it's not a full thing. It didn't really have any music, and I was just, I agree. and I was I disappointed. Agree. And I was like, "How do you set this in in the trenches of the Blade Runner aesthetic and don't have any music?" Like mm-hmm. I, I was disappointed in that. I felt like, man, you just. And maybe though, oh, that's not what we're going for. We wanted to be quiet. We wanted to be about this guy. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine. That's just me saying I really wanted that one scene in Blade Runner where this camera stops, cameras on the crane, and Deckard mm-hmm. is on the is is on, in the streets, and you hear that strange like Eastern sound. I can't. I don't know yeah, what they're yeah. using. Well, it, it, you, it's almost like uh, oh, you know what? Actually, there is a parallel to that in this. Yes, that I there just is. Picked up on. I, I did. I there's know a, there. There's a Tuvan throat singer in this. Did yes. You notice that? Yes, I did. There's I somebody did. doing throat singing, which is from Tuva, which is a, a, a you know in the steppes of Asia. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm looking too far into it, but to me, it seems like that might be referencing what you were talking about, which is that sort of exotic, um, you know, quasi Asian sounding yes. music playing in the background. And I, I totally picked up on that, but it was very incidental and it was very quiet. It was. It, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't uh, framing the piece, and I wanted something to no. frame the piece a little bit more. Right. Not to say that I wanted something to tell me what I'm supposed to feel. It wasn't that. I just really, if you're going to present us Blade Runner, present it to us. Uh, but I right. can imagine trying to write music for a short, and there's probably a lot of complications with that. And it's a right. short film; it's not for everything. So I get it. No. I get why they didn't do it. I just was and, missing. And also, it. like, it, it's sort of hard to tell. Like that—that that might have been diegetic sound. Uh, like you can't see where it's coming from, but it sounds like it's just somebody singing it on the street. So that might not have even actually been part of the soundtrack. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so who's who's to say? But I, I agree. I was struck by the let because you were right. The previous short. I hadn't noticed the music to it until you pointed it out to me. It was, a, it was actually quite beautiful. I mean, it was quite um, interesting. Yeah, this one just had a bunch of, like, brass hits, and that was it. Yep. But, yep. I mean, it was, it was a sort of thing, like, you might as well have gotten, like, generic music from the YouTube DRM-free database. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, Like, it really was not. <laughs> right. So, that being said, I, I think that the, the music department on this film has a lot on their hands at the moment. 
So I, I, would I, don't, agree. I don't exactly blame them for not going out of their way to, I would agree. to get this thing scored. And, you know, who knows? And it's not like Alien when they have their short films. They have, you know, four movies more or more to choose from. Oh, let's use this. Right. Let's use this. Um, and it's kind of hard to steal music from the original Blade Runner and use it. That's such a very specific. I, I think that right. if they want to be, if they want to stay true to their vision, they need to make their own music. You know? Right. Um, so that brings us on to our last large piece of news. And this is spoiler territory. Not so much of the plot of Blade Runner, maybe a little bit the plot. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. It seems you feel our work is not a benefit to the public. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? Sean Young is in Blade Runner 2049. And uh, this news broke by the New York Daily News uh, about two days ago. Uh, I was at work and I went to my phone, as I always do, because I'm always checking news. And I read this and my jaw was on the floor. And I had this sense of elation for probably mm. the past few days. I have felt so excited and happy. It's like I'm going to go see a family member again. Like, Rachel is so much a part of who I am. Uh, but aside from that, aside from who Rachel is, did you expect this? No, I did not. I can't believe that this much time has gone by without us hearing anything about – I mean, this is like one of the leaks to end all leaks. Like, the, the only thing bigger than this would be finding out that Deckard is definitively a replicant or something, you know? Like, this is like a huge deal because – all of this hubbub came out when they announced the film about her not being in it. Um, if I remember correctly, she was also pretty um, explicitly angry about she was. not being involved in it. So I don't know if that was some sort of sleight of hand or something. But, um, I mean, yeah, this is a crazy development. And, and we're just finding out about it just like the score stuff, you know, two weeks before the movie drops. I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah, it what is. Are your, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I am very excited. Again, you know, I, 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 I remember – a year ago, uh, when you know, still thinking about the film and hearing about who's in it, I knew that Gosling was in it and all these people. But of course, I realized that Rachel Sean Young wasn't going to be in it. And I made a post mm -hmm. with a image saying, "I can't imagine a Blade Runner film without Rachel." Um, then right. it was really true. Not that I needed to. It wasn't that. It's a different. It's a different kind of dynamic than me saying I want to see Ripley again because she's a whole different – it's a whole different universe. It's a whole different character. She works very differently. Mm -hmm. um, Rachel for me is the heart and the soul of Blade Runner. She gives it the, – the, Deckard has some melancholy and some – but she has access to these emotions that you don't see in anyone else. She's the emotional heart of Blade Runner. And for right. me – not to say that there isn't one in this new film, um, but I felt like we need that. We need that – I don't know. I don't know. I, maybe we even didn't need it. Maybe it was me just feeling selfish about it. So if they're going to bring her back, I hope she's going to be useful. I hope uh, uh, she's got a lot to do. I mean, she filmed for three days. Uh, I read the if uh, Future Noir just released. It was a it's an updated version of Future Noir. I don't own the book. Uh, I probably will eventually. Mm -hmm. um, and in the book. There's a section that says that Sean Young was flown out to Budapest for three days, and there she filmed her scenes. So three days is quite a bit. I mean, if it was just one scene, it probably would, wouldn't have been more than one day. But right. So she was there for three days doing things. I would imagine this was probably in the cards all along. They don't just, oh, let's write her a scene and fly her out here. This was probably mm -hmm. in the cards all along. And uh, so I'm, I'm super pumped. Um, and, uh, it's just, I hope they service her character. Well, I hope, uh, I hope they don't do, I, I hope her aesthetic isn't like Deckard's aesthetic that I'm seeing in the film where it's kind of blah. His clothes are just kind of normal. <laughs> I was, I was joking about this with you recently about how he's just got like a Hanes beefy tee on yeah. every single shot. Look, he always has a t-shirt. Yeah. It's like, what a, what a boring look for this, for this character, you know? And I think it's difficult to, 
dress Deckard up? Like, how do you dress up a 74-year-old Deckard? Like, how, you can't you put give him a trench coat. I mean, his, his costume is iconic. Yeah, it's true. Film. It's true. And hopefully it's freaking we'll, awesome. It yeah. is. And hopefully, I mean, I, it's a low concern of mine, but it is kind of boring compared to we're seeing yeah. these gorgeous aesthetics and all this crazy futuristic clothing. And we see Decker, mm -hmm. who's kind of, yeah. but I think they're making a statement with his clothing. I think oh, it's a probably. very specific probably. statement they're making. It's plain. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of puts us off a little bit. And I think they're doing that for a reason. Um, yeah. But my hope with Rachel I hope that uh, her costume really echoes who she is um, because yeah. her costume, her look, her aesthetic in the original was a part of her character. So, I mean, right. if her hair's down, I guess, I'm not expecting her to have that bouffant and, you know, mm -hmm. a perfect whatever she's wearing or a dress just like 82. But I hope that they really do her. I hope she reflects the, the Rachel that I know. And I hope I hope they really got the performance out of Sean Young. This is the biggest film she's been in since probably the 90s, maybe. Um, this is a, it's a big deal for her. It's a big career break. She's been mm -hmm. kind of on the sidelines all of her life. She's a very uh, specific person. She's got a very specific personality. I love her. Uh, uh, I, I, I love that. She's very, she's just her own person. She's, she's who she wants to be. And I think that that's yeah. great. Um, yeah. but, uh, and I'm glad to see that, uh, she's in the film. I think that's probably a little bit of a dream come true for her. So, so, so I, I'm very glad too. What, what I worry about is that this might be for deleted content oh. or something that this yeah. might not have made the final cut of the movie yeah and that might that might have played into her being upset when this when you know there were initial announcements about this coming out i mean it's it's incredibly hard to say at this point what that actually was all what that was all about i mean and just the storytelling implications of having rachel in this film are so huge because like a she's still alive so i don't know what that means you know for replicants um but also like that also further cloud clouds the Deckard situation, right? Because then that means that he could similarly, you know, also be replicant and still be alive. But it's also uh, it's cool because it's like, where have they been? I've seen uh, some speculation online that they are going to to somehow de-age her with CG in this, um, which I, I would hate. But I would, I would hate to not be surprised by. But it could be you... a flashback. Have you seen – I've seen recent photos of her. her she's flawless. I mean she's a and little she older. Great. She has no wrinkles on her face. She, no, looks, she looks terrific. Yeah, she I looks, agree. I don't think that they – here's what I – my flash while you were talking of. What if it was her final scenes with him? What if it was her death scene? Mm. What if it's her it's – her, what do you call it? Not inception date. It's her – termination date, her, retirement her, date. Yeah, her expiration date. And yeah. they're playing that scene, her opposite Deckard. And he's older. Yeah. And this is her, and they don't know when she's going to, maybe he does, because she was asking him in Blade Runner, you know, the incept dates, all of those things. I don't know if she was a four-year model or what. I don't, that was right. never established. We, we know very little. I mean, I, yeah, right, exactly. Very, very little. And right. we see that, uh, we see that um, Ryan Gosling's character, his fingers, he's kind of, Moving, there's like a, a piece of wood and there's a date in there. I think it's mm -hmm. something 21. I don't know. Maybe that's her expiration date. I'm not really sure. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, and we're talking about, uh, we're talking about uh, connected to Rachel. I have a just an idea and I could be completely off, but I don't think it's a spoiler because I don't even know. But I just, mm -hmm. there's this idea in the, in, the, in the film, in the trailers, Robin Wright's character, says that's not possible and that they discover something that's going to change humanity. I think right. I think Rachel and Decker had a child and I think it's impossible. Ooh. And I think that child is grown and I think that child is somewhere. And oh I, shit. Um wow. And, yeah, and that that's my idea of because she says it's impossible. Now it's either impossible that Decker's Wait still a minute. Is it Officer K? I doubt it. I doubt it. What it could, if it is? It could what be. What if it is? It could what if be. that's what this is all about? Yeah. What yeah. if that's the secret? Yeah. True. I True. mean, it, because remember, because he turns around when, when, uh, when, oh man, who, who is it? I haven't seen the trailer in a few days now. Um, <clears throat> when somebody says, uh, this is the future of this, it's probably Meander, when he talks about yeah. the future of the species, right? And then it shows Gosling turning around and it's raining and he looks very intense. What if he finds out that he's actually half synthetic or half uh, replicant or something. Yeah, you know? yeah he could be. Yeah. He could be. Uh, be awesome. And the whole K thing, like Deckard is a very hard K sound. Mm -hmm. When you think of Deckard, it's a very hard K sound or yeah. C sound or whatever. And I, when I first saw that his name was Officer K, it seemed very mysterious, that he's very mm -hmm. mysterious. I think it's a little bit predictable that he could be 
Deckard. It is. I don't it want is. him to be Deckard's son. I really don't. Um, yeah. I'd rather it be maybe Deckard had a, a daughter or something. Mm. Um, but anyways, that's just my uh, idea about maybe where things could be going. Um, I love it. That's awesome, man. That's but, uh, cool. So that's all I have today for our, our Well, I, I think we might want to briefly mention the uh, anime short that yes. we just announced. Right? Yes, yes. You want to maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I we shared a... a a link on our page for it's kind of a behind the scenes. It was in Japanese, um, and there was some type of subtitles in a different language, I believe. Um, and I didn't really know it said blackout, and I didn't really know what I was going to see. And so all of a sudden, you see the, all this Blade Runner aesthetic, and you see these anime characters, and I'm like, oh fuck! Like <laughs> I was just blown away. And I'm a fan of anime. I'm not like a hyper fan of anime, but I've seen a lot of anime, and I've always been a big fan. Um, from Akira to to Ghost in the Shell to um, Appleseed. I mean, I, I'm a fan. I I know a little bit about it, and uh, I think that this was a a genius move on their end. Genius move. Uh, Ghost in the Shell is born from the aesthetic of Blade Runner. Oh yeah, totally. So right. I think this is just lineage there. Yeah, I'm sure you saw the clip. Uh, I, I did. Yeah, it looks awesome. Yeah, it looks really, really cool. Uh, but, but so so that is not uh, finished or it's not released yet. No, but we're, we're going to be getting it. One would assume in the next week. I would imagine. So that's something to be looking for. Yes, um, yes. Very much as we get closer to it. Absolutely. And hopefully, we'll, our next episode we can get into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that'll be right. great. Cool, man. Well, folks, thanks for listening. That's all we have for today. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry it's a little bit of a shorter episode but we have a time crunch but we will be back for more and we're like three weeks out from this film I think just about three weeks under under that I think yeah Yeah, it's really coming up yeah Yeah. I'm so excited I'm so excited I can't wait so me too it'll be amazing all right all right thank you see you see ya I've seen Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears.